Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, it became, as you know, it became probably the most popular capital raising vehicle in the marketplace. I think certainly we saw IPOs uh, took off in a major way, but SPACs even, even greater. That was Michael Bieber. He's the chairman of the board at Exeger. And he visits with me today about the current state of SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Vehicles, some of the abuses that happened over the past couple of years, but more importantly, the positive aspects of SPACs and where they will be going in 2022 and beyond. It's a great episode. I know you'll enjoy it. Have you ever thought about the intersection of tax and compliance? Well, I had not until I did a five-part podcast series on Taxman with Tracy Howe. Check it out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today, with with me, back with me, I should say, Michael Beaver. Michael is with Exeger, and we are going to have a uh, kind of free-flowing conversation on the current state of SPACs, or Special Purpose Acquisition Vehicles, here in the U.S. So, Michael, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me, and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Thanks, Tom. Looking forward to it. Michael, the first time we visited on this subject, I was relatively new uh, to this. You have been uh, knowledgeable and involved with SPACs for for quite some time, but they literally exploded on the corporate consciousness, I think, in, in 2020. And here we are in 2022, and that explosion uh, of consciousness, I think, has abated. And also, perhaps some of the shine or sheen may have also uh, been dimmed a little bit. So, uh, could you could I first start by asking you what you saw over the kind of the course of the pandemic around SPACs? Well, it became, as you know, it became probably the most popular capital raising vehicle in the marketplace. I think uh, certainly we saw IPOs uh, took off in a major way, but SPACs even even greater, and uh, uh, literally in 2021. You know, there were over 600 SPACs uh, raising, you know, close to 150 billion dollars. So it really was, uh, it really was a crazy time. And as you said, things have have definitely settled down and changed. And I, I think, uh, obviously, at the end of the day, there's reasons why things have changed, which I'm happy to get into with you. Uh, and then, obviously, uh, those changes are going to lead to a, a very different future. Yes, exactly. That's what I'd love to be able to visit with you about the uh, the changes in perception, the changes in 
uh, regulatory focus, if that might be the right f- phrase, and then the changes in how they may be used going forward. So could we perhaps start with some of the changes in perception about SPACs, what people thought they were back in 2020, and what they may have changed into now already? When special purpose acquisition corporations became you know, super popular in 2021, it was Really, uh, well, they've been around for many, many years, you know, well over 10 years. Um, They became popular because it it really was a simpler way uh, for, well, number one, it was a great way for investors to put money to work, and it was a simpler way for companies to go public. And what happened was, if you were a traditional company that could go public in the normal course, you would because um, the fee base uh, that you would have to effectively assume uh, in an IPO, it was much less than a SPAC. On the flip side, if you're a company that it was going to be challenging, more challenging to go to the IPO market, you were prepared to go through a SPAC because it was faster. And even though there was this promote, if you will, um, it was still worthwhile. And, and so what ended up happening is traditional companies with revenue and cash flow uh, and predictability would go the traditional IP, IPO route and more venturesome companies um, uh, like the electric vehicle companies, like the battery companies, these these more venturesome companies that really some of them did were pre-revenue, some had uh, minor amounts of revenue, but what they had was intellectual property. The SPAC vehicle was perfect for them because they could inherit uh, a company that would have two or three hundred million dollars on the balance sheet, which could then be used to to move the company forward. So that's why they became so popular in uh, 2021 because of the availability of capital and the need for these companies to to raise capital. The question then became is how are they going to perform? And I think that's where um, there was a lot of of concern. And uh, the concern ultimately was that these companies were startups. They were not mature. Uh, Their technology was still... Uh, untested in many cases, and so that uh, investors, uh, particularly retail investors, you know, in, institutional investors have the ability to to look deeper into these opportunities and make their own assessments. I, I, I always have less concern about the institutional investor because, quote unquote, they probably know better or should know better. On the flip side, the retail investor really has a limited way of, uh, of really understanding the company and, and what they're doing. And in, in the case of SPACs, the amount of disclosure is, is much less than what you would see in an IPO. So, so what ended up happening, of course, is that these, these companies didn't perform. Uh, their stock prices uh, went down dramatically. They may have gone through a period where, you know, the stock prices, they typically go public at around $10 a share. And so in many of them, um, You'll see that, like in DraftKings, the stock price went as high as sixty dollars. In Quantum Scope, the stock price went as high as eighty-four dollars. And then, you know, there was this this reckoning that took place, and the stock prices fell back. Some of them fell back to their their SPAC levels. You know, the ten dollars a share. Some fell below that. Um, uh, many fell below that, and so and then others like DraftKings and Quantum Scope are still above their their effectively their IPO price. But, but what, ended up, what ended up happening is you had this real, um, you know, day of reckoning. And I think that really caught the attention of investors, obviously, and it caught the attention of the SEC. And so the question then became is, what's going to become of, of SPACs in the future? 
Well, and that leads me to the next point I wanted to explore uh, with you, Michael, which is the SEC. Uh, obviously, we had a change in administration and a new uh, SEC uh, chair come in who I think uh, had uh, at least different views than uh, our prior chair, uh, Jay Clayton. Our current chair is Gary Gensler. What did you see from the SEC, at, at least to date, around their comments on SPAC that has been notable to you? Number one, they are very concerned about the retail investors involved in SPACs. You know, again, if you had only institutional investors taking advantage of this sort of swifter way forward uh, to an IPO, I think it would be a different conversation. But the, the fact is retail investors got on board. And, and so I think that's what, what creates the concern in the first instance. I think in the second instance that, that they see that, that people fundamentally see the SPAC as a simpler IPO mechanism because the SPAC itself is the vehicle that went public. And when the company, when the SPAC is going to de-SPAC, uh, it looks more like a, an S4 merger than it does like the, all the disclosures that you would expect to see when a company goes public in the first instance. So I think the first thing you're going to see uh, coming out of the SEC is bringing the standards for, for SPAC demergers. The SPAC itself, there's not a lot more you can do um, because at the end of the day, what, what, what disclosure is there really? It's a blank check corporation that hasn't made an acquisition, is looking to make an acquisition. Uh, you know, there'll be more disclosure around the, the backgrounds of the, the promoters of the SPAC. There'll be more uh, disclosure around the fees uh, and the associated uh, relationship between the sponsors and the, uh, and the investment banks. Uh, and, and, and frankly, the investors themselves, particularly if there's any potential conflicts of interest there. But I think overall, I think what we're going to see is, is a lot more disclosure around the merger uh, partner, if you will, and, and exactly the company that's being acquired. Because at the end of the day, if you're an investor in a SPAC, uh, in the first instance, you have the decision to make you have a decision that you can make, which is whether or not you're going to allow your money to actually be used in that merger, or if you're going to choose to have it paid back. Whereas a, a, an individual buying an IPO, sorry, buying a, a, a company that's gone public through a SPAC, at the end of the day, does not have that determination. They really are just going out and buying the stock. And I think what the SEC has said is that they want a lot more disclosure that, that rivals the disclosure that these investors would see in an IPO um, so that, that they're in a better position to make an investment decision. Whether that'll have a major positive change, um, that's a question that is worth exploring because, uh, um, you know, I think it's, I think, I think there's certain other things afoot uh, in the industry generally that I think will have very positive changes other than just, just more regulation. Michael, we've also begun to see uh, enforcement actions involving SPACs and some Delaware court cases involving SPACs. And the the thing that struck me about both the SEC enforcement actions and the Delaware court case is these did not really take radical departures from prior enforcement actions or court decisions that they tried to be consistent with uh, prior precedent. And with uh, the Tesla uh, enforcement action, it was for conduct that occurred after uh, the SPAC uh, uh, purchased uh, Tesla, and then there was the D-SPAC. And then in a court case, the court 
uh, really used sort of prior existing Delaware law to analyze the situation. Uh, if if that's a fair assessment, would you see that trend going forward? Yeah, look, I, I think you will. Again, what I would say to you is, is that the quality of the companies that are going to form parts of SPACs will be much, much higher in general. And that was really my comment uh, a moment ago, is that I, I do believe there will be further regulation. I do believe that there will be um, a convergence, if you will, of the expectations for disclosures around SPACs uh, being much more aligned to IPOs. But I also think that the general state of SPACs um, in terms of the assets that they're going to acquire are going to be much, much higher quality. So that you're going to see right now, uh, for example, you'll see that SPAC dollars raised will be used to fund operations more than anything else because, uh, again, these were startups that SPACs are acquiring. Now I believe you're going to see that when SPACs make acquisitions, it's going to be much more traditional companies with revenues, with gross margin, with, with a level of, of, they may be losing money, uh, they may not be EBITDA positive at this point, but what they will be is there'll be companies that have clear trajectories. They have clear products in clear markets with clear customers, with addressable markets that are large, with, um, with growth rates that are, are, are proven. Um, with more predictable revenue streams. So I, what I'm saying is I believe the quality of the companies is going to be much higher. I think there's going to be more regulation, but I think the convergence of those two will result in, uh, in a, a lower level of needed enforcement um, that you might have seen based upon the, the mergers that we saw in 2021. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Michael, do you also see a maturity in SPACs themselves performing due diligence on these acquisition candidates uh, as well? You know, I, that's uh, it is a yes and no, um, and I'll explain why. So for the SPACs themselves, they will have raised capital, obviously, uh, and that's what allowed them to go IPO. And then they'll have plus or minus two years to, to get an acquisition done. But a key component of success meaning getting the investors to agree to allow their money to be used in the DSPAC. Because as, as you know, they're allowed, the investors have an opportunity to be refunded uh, their money. And, and so they can actually turn down, uh, even if the, if the merger gets approved, um, the investors themselves can, can uh, pull their money out and not be, be part of it. So what, what I think you're going to see a lot more due diligence is from what they call the pipe providers. Um, a pipe is private investment in public equity. In order to get a SPAC done today, to prove up the, the price, if you will, it's not just enough to get a fairness opinion from an investment bank, but what you actually need is an investor independent of the investors in the, uh, in the SPAC to put up uh, incremental dollars uh, to actually buy the stock of the company based upon the price that's agreed with the uh, with the selling company that's going to be part of the public uh, part of the public vehicle, and so at the end of the day, uh, these pipe investors um, really have a big part of the due diligence burden uh, 
uh, because they're going to be actually writing a check and, and being part of the support, if you will, for, for the purchase price. So I think you're going to see, one, a much higher bar for the companies that are going to be, form parts of SPACs, uh, and two, that the pipe investors are going to do much deeper and broader due diligence to make sure that, that what they're paying makes sense uh, or whether they should do the deal at all. And then finally, this with a regulatory, you know, over, over, uh, overarching regulatory burden, uh, incremental burden, I think those three things together will overall improve the, the SPAC market materially. Michael, uh, could you uh, give us some of the key components that a pipe investor might need to pursue in uh, due diligence or looking into pot- potential acquisition candidates since these companies are typically private and there's no uh, public reporting of any of their results? It's a great question. It's going to look, to, in many respects, it's going to look like an acquisition that will have been done by any uh, if you will, when a publicly traded company does an acquisition, typically of another private company, they will enter into you know full confidentiality agreement, a non-disclosure agreement that will have certain you know rights and obligations to see and protect data. So there will be a full NDA process, and then there will be a full diligence process where they'll have to produce multiple years financial statements. They may have industry reports done around the total addressable market and the growth rate of that market. They can have quality of earnings reports done by, by um, accounting firms to, to vet the, the quality of the earnings that are being reported. Uh, they can do full background checks on the company itself and the management. So what you're, what you're going to see is that the pipe investor is no longer just going to accept that the deal is at the table and that the SPAC um, itself has done work. Uh, around the the merger candidate, but in fact, they'll retain their own advisors and do their own work so that they can independently make their, if you will, their own acquisition decisions. So again, you're going to see it look a lot more like a traditional M&A process than than you would have in the past. Michael, at this point, do you, are you uh, upbeat around the use of SPACs? Because when we started uh, you said one of the key reasons for their literal explosion back in 2020 and 2021 was putting money to work. My sense is the money is still out there looking to be put to work. Is Would that be a fair assessment? It is. But, I, you know, I think what's going to happen is that the, the attraction of a SPAC vehicle um, will be significantly reduced to a potential seller because, in a traditional IPO, there's a certain level of disclosure and roadshow, and, and there's a whole series of things that, that a potential, um, if you will, seller or SPAC uh, merger candidate uh, would go through in an IPO scenario, right? So a lot more work, a lot more effort. And, and so they would choose the SPAC route because it was much faster and they would be okay with the, the promotional fee, the 20%, if you will, that the promoter gets. Because, again, they were a much more earlier stage company really looking for the capital that would come with a SPAC. Now, because the standard's been raised much, much higher, the companies that would be prepared to sell into a SPAC are more likely um, to want to sell into their own IPO because they are of a much higher quality. And so if they're able to do an IPO, they're going to say, well, why wouldn't I do that? And so I think there's a flight to quality to SPACs, 
but it's still going to be a company that that's got to be a high growth, you know, large market opportunity, high growth technology. I'm guessing will be a bigger piece, but there's going to have to be much more visibility into it. So it has to be a higher quality company, but mm-hmm. still one that finds the IPO route as it's traditionally been a little too onerous. And this might be seen as a more attractive route. But I will tell you, um, I think there's going to be fewer SPACs. Um, and I think that of the SPACs that happen, fewer of them will actually get deals done, meaning investors will be more particular uh, about backing out of, out of opportunities um, unless it's really something great. And my worry is, if it really is something great, then why isn't the company going to go the traditional IPO route? If a company is acquired by a SPAC and then uh, moving towards the de-SPACing process, could the, could the SPAC company bring uh, managerial or executive expertise, much like we see in rounds of investment of private companies? Yeah, I, I think that that's a great question, too, because what you saw with the original SPACs were, you know, the people that were promoting them could be athletes, they could be entertainers, they could be all sorts of people that really the quality of the promoter in the early days um, was really not scrutinized that well. Now, um, the SPACs themselves are, before they even go public, um, they're being scrut- the management teams are being scrutinized much more for much more detailed, uh, deeper and wider expertise around the type of M&A that they are proposing. And, and certainly in my conversations with people that are have, have successfully um, got a company public, uh, not, not the D-SPAC, but I'm talking about the SPAC itself, you know, when they're making their pitches to sellers, it's that we're going to be value-added. So if you're part of your thesis is that you're going to want to do a series of acquisitions post, um, post-de-SPACing because, for example, you know, you, you, you live in a world where there's high fragmentation, um, or you live in a world where there's a whole series of subscale players, whatever it is that's going to prompt you to, to do uh, more SPACs, uh, uh, sorry, to do the SPAC, um, I think the, the SPAC itself will, will make a case to the seller that they will have their sample and you're selling into a marketplace where you see that there's a series of acquisitions that you could potentially make, um, including you know, from high fragmentation, um, or from, you know, that there's strategic players out there that are subscale. Um, there are strategic players that are in markets or have capabilities that you need. Whatever it is, the SPACs today will make a case that not dissimilar to a private equity firm that they could be supportive in executing on that strategy. So I think more and more, uh, you're right. I think the SPACs are going to make a play to the sellers that they're value added and not strictly just a conduit to go public. Michael, would it be fair to sit, to look to look at a SPAC or see a SPAC as one tool? That one tool is available for both investors and those looking to raise money in the capital markets. That, uh, depending on a variety of factors, may or may not be the right way to go. But it's it, if seen as a tool and properly used, it can be successful. Yeah, I think that any company that is contemplating a form of recap or monetization, a SPAC has to be on their list as something to look at. It's just there's too much capital there to ignore. Um, But as I said to you before, the bar is high and there's this fee base, right? There's 20%. If a SPAC raises $200 million, 
plus or minus, there's a fee base of $40 million in, of, of, of dilution um, that any seller has to accept it exists. And so, you know, if, if, if you're a seller and your business is worth, you know, six or 700 million and there's 200 million of cash that's raised, um, you know, that, that's, that's a, a big base of fees. So, you know, as I said, I think the bar is high and, um, and, but it is a vehicle for sure. Michael, unfortunately, we are in near the end of our time for this episode, but I wanted to thank you again. And uh, perhaps I could call upon you a, a little uh, uh, less infrequently in the future to talk about this most interesting uh, corporate development. Well, great. It was really nice speaking with you. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox of Hope. You've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I also hope you will check out a special five-part podcast series I'm running on the Innovation and Compliance podcast on Taxman, the intersection of tax and compliance. I visit with tax expert Tracy Howell on a variety of topics in this podcast series, including why tax should talk to compliance, why tax needs a seat at the table during contract negotiations, what is transfer pricing, tax and supply chain, and the role of tax in ESG. It's a topic that most compliance officers really don't spend enough time thinking about and working with the corporate tax function. I know you will find it incredibly useful. Thanks again for listening to the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join us again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.